0: I'm Chris Johnston. I'm a resilient specialist and writer, author of Active Hope and Find Your Power, living in the northeast of Scotland.
1: So what is burnout for you? I think rather than a
0: definition, I prefer an image. Burnout, when I, when I think of burnout, I think of the image of a field of wheat that has been over farmed for years to the point where the soil declines and the field no longer grows very much and we see that happening all around our world where once fertile areas have decline of topsoil to the point where they no longer um, produce the same kind of yield and if you think of that in human terms you can think of somebody who used to be enthusiastic and productive but gets to the point where they feel used up where they're no longer able to offer so much But also importantly Their quality of life Their experience of life Also really declines It's like life goes sour And another image I have Is of a tube of toothpaste That has been completely used up And squeezed um, Every last drop of it out So it's just just used up There's, there's nothing very much there left
1: And Burnout isn't something that you tend to hear about so much, sort of in the Women's Institute or in uh, I don't know football supporters' clubs or something. It, it, it seems to be something that is particularly uh, a problem. Uh, I mean, many people in, in, in work, in stressful work contexts, experience it. But it seems to be something activists uh, and kind of change makers are particularly prone to. Why is that, do
0: you think? There's a saying that in order to burn out, you need to first be on fire. And so burnout is a risk where people have strong sense of passion behind what they do. So somebody's very committed to their work. And there's research here that shows that the people who are most at risk of burnout tend to be those who are most conscientious and sensitive. That if you didn 't care about what you were doing, if it wasn 't so important to you you 'd be at less risk of burnout um, but but also it 's a work that 's going to be talked about more because research is showing very clearly the whole thing about aiming for industrial growth is that people are being squeezed harder and harder in their workplaces uh, stress is in, is on the increase, and it 's already one one of the major causes of time off work through sickness, stress, anxiety, and depression. And we live in a more driven society where the casualty rate is going up.
1: And very often I think you know, that, that a lot of organisations who, who argue that we need a new way of doing things, a, a new economy and so on, as organisations often can end up being driven and working in much the same way, having the same kind of work culture as what they're trying to replace.
0: And there's an issue here because it's like you look out at the world and there's so much that needs to be done. You know, we really are in such a dire state in so many ways that you can have that sense of urgency driving us harder and harder. And also for people who whose work is is basically about service work, there's often a resource issue, that the demand is high, but the resources supporting their work are often inadequate. And so that puts people under a great deal of strain.
1: So one of the questions that that, that Sophie Banks raised in the editorial piece that she wrote for this theme was she said, what would... What might it look like if the culture of transition as a movement, if if the DNA that people who, wherever they are in the world, pick up transition and start to work with it, meant that there was no burnout? What would that look like, do you think?
0: Yeah, well, first of all, I love Sophie's piece and point people towards that. I think it's a very important piece of work that you and her have done in just opening up the conversation around this area. And I think that you'd recognize an organization that had really dealt with burnout if that they saw as, as well as working for change out there in the world, that one of the areas of its attention was what I call the middle bit of change. The middle bit of change is, first bit of change is becoming aware of a problem. The third bit of change is having the action response to that. The the middle bit of change is everything that happens between awareness and action. And if you see that 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 includes things like our levels of enthusiasm, our levels of energy, um, whether we even want to look at an issue. If we pay attention to that, that that middle bit of change and we see that that's part of the work of activism, uh, that that would be the kind of thing you'd see in an organization or a movement that had really come to, you know, come to deal with burnout where there wasn't any burnout and if if we really paid attention to that we would pay attention to things like enthusiasm you know i see enthusiasm as as like topsoil is if you have high levels of enthusiasm you out of that the best yields tend to to grow um and so if an organization paid attention to enthusiasm then they'd look at things like do people feel enthusiastic about coming to our meetings? You know, some meetings are boring. They're heart sink um, areas. But if we really paid attention to what would make this a meeting that people want to come along to. And I think there's some great examples of there. I've given some talks and run some workshops to sustainable Froom And I was very impressed with them that they had a problem where they had meetings that weren't that well attended. And One of the things they did was they said, well, okay, let's meet for a food share, a shared meal before we have the meeting. If we're going to have a film or something, you know, let's meet first. We all bring along some food and we share it. And it changed the, the quality of their meeting from something that people think, oh, I should go to something that people wanted to go to, that they looked forward to. And I think that's one of the things if we can make our meetings things that people look forward to coming to that would be the kind of thing that would uh go a long way to making burnout less lightly
1: i remember peter McFadden in Froom, who was one of the people in the group who who became the mayor said that when he became the mayor he would always bake cookies uh to take along to the meeting uh and how 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 it changed the quality of the meeting you know starting out with some biscuits he'd made before the meeting yes um, I, th- um, I sorry i love
0: that phrase you've just used change the quality of the meeting Mm. and and so there's content in terms of what do we do but there's also process which is how do we do it and how do we change the quality of our meetings and and i think that that's um it's seeing that how we do things is as important as as what we do that we live in a economy that's very focused on product Um, very focused on what comes out the end of an assembly line. And that can also be true of activists, too, that we can judge what we do by um, the end result. But also with process, we're saying, well, how do we do it? Can we do it in a way that is nourishing? Can we do it in a way that is attractive? And and when we start asking those questions, when we really look at the quality of our meetings, yeah, it really changes things.
1: I was uh, We were talking before about... Paris and COP21, and you know, there was huge amount of emotional energy that people poured in there during a very kind of intense couple of weeks. Um, and one of the quotes that Sophie starts her piece is where she says that uh, the burnout is the dirty secret of the environmental movement. And uh, after, after COP15 in, in Copenhagen, it felt like the lack of a result the sort of uh, the the whole process and all that Copenhagen stuff actually the, the the climate movement was pretty burnt out for three or four years it took itself quite a long time to, to recover from it what advice might you have for people who were involved in in copenhagen who might now be coming home and thinking well was the agreement all that it was wrapped up to be and you know all the energy that people put into that what would your advice be for the climate movement more generally in terms of its risk of burnout following such an intense experience like that
0: yes well i think one of the first things to say is a lot of this work for our world is hard and there are big disappointments along the way um i draw inspiration from historical examples and i think particularly back to the campaign for the abolition of the slave trade and people might know that it was just a dozen or so people who met in an old print shop in london one evening and out of that and many other things that followed a movement grew but what's less known is that there were huge dips and disappointments in that campaign there was a period where um there were much harsher laws where the the campaign closed its office for about seven years. They stopped their meetings, that it looked like all was lost. And yet turnings can happen. And this is where one of the things for me is I, I draw inspiration from adventure stories and adventure stories often have what I, I call their chapter seven moments that, you know, usually by the middle of a book, um, certainly by chapter seven, things have gone hopelessly wrong and it all seems lost. But also the story is about turning and change and it's looking at how we make that more lightly. And one of the, the strengths or qualities that will make a turning or change more likely is, is resilience And this is why I really have learned so much from you, Rob, that you've really built a whole movement around taking resilience seriously. And part of resilience is community resilience and societal resilience, but also part of resilience is personal resilience. And I've made this a big piece of my life work, looking at what helps us keep going, what helps us I well I, I call it find the upslope of a dip, that when we dip down, how do we climb back out again? And I think that we need to see this as centre stage for activism. It's not some fringe meeting that might happen now and again for people who are touchy-feely types, that we need to bring this centre stage, and because it, it is also centrally about an ethic of sustainability and an ethic of sustainability is about looking through a larger lens in time inhabiting a larger wider timescape if a timescape is the period of time that we give our attention to uh, often we can it can be quite a narrow space you know it can be the the period of now plus or minus a few years But if we see this working for our world stuff as something that we need to do for all all our lives, it's a marathon, not a sprint. Or if it is a sprint, it needs to be like with what they call interval training, where you you push hard and then you pause and renew. You push hard and then you pause and renew. Um, That if we're seeing that we've got a long, long distance to go, we need to look at how we find a sustainable pace and how we nourish ourselves to keep going.
1: And how in your own life, Chris? How how do you, you know, you're you're involved with lots of different things, and uh, you know, how how do you? What are the strategies in your own life that you model uh, in terms of reducing burnout and, and having that mindfulness in your own life?
0: So one of the my first strategies, I call it know where I am on the hill, and what I'm looking at here is the human function curve where. Um, I think of it, one axis is increasing pressure or or, um, demand. And I think of that as spinning more plates. Like the further you go on, and I can send you an an image of this, the further you go on the lower axis, um, the more plates you're spinning. And the um, vertical axis is how well I'm coping or how well I'm performing. And that I need a certain level of demand to bring out my best performance. And often when I'm working towards a deadline, it pushes me, nudges me to perform better. But also, if I push too hard, my performance declines, that I run out of steam. And so uh, I, I I would say self-awareness is, is the most important starting point. It's like knowing where I am on the hill. And one of the things that I do is I, I show up every day on the page. I, I have a journal, um, I... I write every morning. I tend to sit in bed. One of the first things I do is I just check in. And it's it's a it's a way that I listen to myself. There's other ways of listening to yourself. Mindfulness is, is another. It, it's, it's having a space where I'm checking in with myself. I'm saying, Chris, how am I doing? Where am I on the hill? Am I in productive space? Am I in dri- overdriven space? Am I in exhausted space? And then it's it's paying attention to like a feedback loop where... I, I know how I'm doing, and then I respond to that. So if I'm really... Um, so I, I have lots of enthusiasm for lots of different things. I've, I'm involved in lots of different projects. And my habit is to over-push um, over myself. I, I tend to have my ups and downs. But on the whole, I've always got loads of things on the go, and I do get exhausted and I do get a bit singed from time to time. But my key strategy here is, is that when it happens, I notice it and I take steps. So I then start looking at my diary and saying, OK, how can I ease, the, the, ease my foot off the pressure pedal here? And then there's a real important insight here, which is when in overload, more is less. And what I mean by that is that when I push myself to do more and more and more, I become less effective. And so I need to use the power of no. Um, I, I do commitment cropping that I run through. And commitments are like hedges. They'll just sprout and sprout and, you know, grow and grow. And unless you regularly trim them, they become unmanageable. And so when I'm noticing myself straining, I look for what I can trim back. And the, I'm, I'm not a brilliant model at this. I, I would say when I teach burnout prevention courses, which I do, um, I say every time I do that, it's a refresher course for me as well. It's like I have to remind myself of the lessons because this is a, a very live issue for me. Uh, I do get a bit singed at the edges at times. Um, but also... I. I need to pay attention to my own strategies. Now, I know some people that are much better at me at taking regular holidays and having regular times off, and I, I have intentions to do that, and I I, um, I oscillate. You know, sometimes I, I go through periods where I'm much better at, at having Sundays as a, a renewal day, but I also have times where I'm pushed towards a, a writing deadline particularly where... I, I just show up every day, and uh, I recognize that when I'm approaching a deadline, I need to immerse myself in it. It's, it's part of the way that I work. I need to get really absorbed in it, and so I might kind of lose myself in a piece of writing where somebody might look at my hours and say, Chris, you're, you're working far too hard here. But the key is that, that I then, after pushing hard... I think of sports training, interval training. It's pushing hard and then easing off. So I need to pay attention to um, renewal.